This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. What indications does the text of Revelation itself give you that there's going to be some symbology at work in the text? So I think it starts right up front with the very first verse of of the Bible uh, of the uh, of the book, where it's it says this it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, and this this is a pet peeve of mine actually, where you have a lot of people that refer to this as the revelation of John, but this is not the revelation of John. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, right? And it says, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his uh, douloi, his uh, his slaves, uh, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and made it known by signs is how I would render this uh, this this Greek here. He, uh, he signified it. So uh, this is the, the word... Uh, semino, and that word has it's the word the Greek words uh, where we get uh, the the uh, what's it called the, the signs English, and wonders yeah well the English the English concept of semiology oh yeah. or, or semi or semiotics that so is. nobody knows what that is yeah semiotics <laughs> it's the it's the study of signs or symbols yeah. and that sort of thing and and so this is the actual Greek word underlying that and he is signifying it or making it known by signs to his servant or his slave, John. And so the the book tells you in the first verse, like be prepared for a lot of symbolism and for a lot of signs throughout this book. And so I think it tells you, I mean, tells you right there, don't expect a straightforward discursive, you know, epistle here to, to tell you how this, you know, one-to-one how this is actually going to work in a uh, in a historical fashion. This is a book of symbols and sim- symbolism. You could forgive people, though, who then read on into that chapter, um, and... And you do get this kind of one-for-one symbolism marked out with the, the, you know, the lampstand, which is actually the church, and the angel, you know, that speaks to that church. The star is the angel. Um, so this, you know, it's tipping you off that there is some correspondence between the things being discussed and some realities on the ground. Uh, but again, uh, how tightly or loosely do we hold that symbolism? Is you know, the ever-present quest. Should we talk about Left Behind at some point here? Like, <laughs> do we um, have to? Well, <laughs> only for, I don't even know. I've never read Left Behind. I only know like the cultural impact that I have to deal with, and uh, I get to deal with as a privilege of teaching. And um, I mean, I do think there is there are people who believe they have nailed a lot of the interpretation of of Revelation, but I think it's important, you know, like Timothy LaHaye and Jenkins, I forget the-, the Jerry Jenkins. Jerry yes, Jenkins. He's the, uh, he's, I believe he's the father of the one who's now, of the, the guy who's now doing the, the series, The Chosen. Oh, Dallas Jenkins. Yeah, I'm pretty sure- I that, did not know yeah. that connect. How did I not know that? Okay, so, but, but Tim LaHaye, 
actually, because I've heard him in interviews on NPR, he actually believes that his interpretation is divinely given interpretation, that he was writing down what God was telling him how to interpret revelation, right? So that's one way, if we could put that on one end of the continuum. Um, and, you know, the other way might be to put it in a decoder ring situation where you just kind of label everything as coded, encoded, and then the goal is just to decode it. Um, what are the other options or maybe what are better ways than those two? Because those are going to end, those both seem to end in problems, obvious problems. Yeah. I mean, anytime you're dealing with, with revelation, the first thing that you have to, to kind of accept is that this is, this is a book that's written to people who are living a long time ago in, you know, a faraway place, uh, that do not share the same cultural linguistic or other, uh, standards or norms that we, that, that we, that modern English speaking people who, who might be listening to this podcast or might be talking on this podcast share. It's just different. Right. Uh, and so that in itself should immediately bring us to a, a place of humility in the sense that we need, we have to actually do the best that we can to bridge the gap to basically understand the context and the, uh, the norms and the way that this kind of book or this kind of literature functions in that, in that context. Uh, so, so the first thing for me, I mean, I, I'm trained, you know, as a historical critical <laughs> biblical scholar, which to some extent makes me useless in, in certain church contexts. Uh, if I, if I only right. stick with that, uh, you know, or in more religious contexts, cause you know, people want to go want to want to say, well, what does it mean for me? Well, I, right. I you know, that's a, that's a step that <laughs> in, to some extent gets drummed out of us in, in our training at that level. But I do think that it's a, that, that the step that has to come before it is understanding what might this have meant to, to the sorts of folks that would have been reading it early on. And that requires really getting into and, and understanding as much as can be reconstructed, the kinds of of context and the kinds of things that it is that the world that that its author and its recipients are are uh, are swimming in, uh, yeah. and so that's the first thing is is learning to do that, and that's going to involve reading all sorts of other uh, other material, whether that be other biblical material, other early Jewish material that in many cases shares similar kinds of symbolism and, you know, the, the weird beasts and, uh, trumpets and angelic, uh, uh, messengers and all sorts of different things that, that we see here. These are not unique to revelation. Revelation does unique things with them, mm -hmm. but these are things that are known in other literature from the period. And there are certain genre type genre specific type things that are encoded in that once you get familiar with that kind of literature, it helps understand a little bit of what's going on. So I think that's, that's one important piece that I would say would be a part of, of taking a, a more robust approach to revelation is understanding it as a, a document of its time to specific people in, in a specific context and then working out from there. Then yeah. if you want to take the step of, okay, well, knowing some of those things, then what might, might it mean for modern readers? That's another step, but recognizing that that's another step is I think important. 
Yeah, and even the uh, you know to a particular audience. I mean, it, in some ways, Revelation is first and foremost an epistle uh, written directly to particular peoples in particular cities, um, with with obviously overshot audience in mind. Um, I, I also, you know, speaking of the historical context, I can't tell you how many times somebody has said to me something like, "Well, I think these." these signs that we're supposed to look for in Revelation, I think they're coming true, you know, the wars. And and I say, oh, oh, well, okay, I don't, you know, I don't know how to judge those kinds of things. And they're like, man, it's worse now than it's ever been before. Like all this war, all this stuff, like, can you imagine, you know? And, and I'm like, do, do you know what Jews went through in the first two centuries <laughs> in Israel? Like, if you want to talk about wars, beasts, empires, you know, uh, is it fair to say that historically speaking, any Jewish family that survived the Bar Kokhba revolution by the mid mid second century would have seen pretty much the worst things imaginable? Yeah, I can't even. I, I I'm not sure it's even imaginable for us. Right. Oh no, for us, yeah. I mean, it's I mean, worse it, than Holocaust movies in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's beyond our imagination in many in many respects. You read some of the stories because someone who would have whose family would have lived through the Bar Kokhba revolt. I mean, that's less than a generation removed from the stuff in seventy. So, I mean, you're, you've gone through this twice, and then don't forget the diaspora revolts of the of the one you know one fourteen to one sixteen one seventeen area. I mean, you're talking about people being massacred, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and you know, there's a reason that you know you have the Cave of Horrors has that name in uh, in in Judea or in mm-hmm. in modern Israel today, where you go and you you see that this is a cave where you know there are all these families that just they died in this cave, and you know actually gives us a lot of information about about that era because they had all their stuff with them, and mm-hmm. you know they're th- these children that are with their family and they're all there. And they died because they were part of, uh, as far as we can tell, they were part of the of of one of the revolts, hmm. and you know that that's something that's just hard for us to to conceptualize how bad things actually got. Uh, and and actually, the interesting thing is, uh, you know, that whole wars and rumors of wars piece and all of that. I mean, that's uh, you know Mark thirteen, Matthew twenty four, you know, the synoptic apocalypse. The interesting thing is that Jesus actually lead he leads off when they say, you know, what what will be the sign of these things coming to pass and you know the and the sign of your coming. And he gives and he says, Oh, well, there will be wars of and rumors of wars and and you know, famines and pestilences and in many areas and so on and so forth. And then he finishes after that 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 prologue by saying, But the end is not yet. Don't right. don't associate the end with those things. That's right. the interesting thing, is that he leads with that and then he's like but don't think that these things are the are, uh, really have anything to do with the end. And if you think about that, that actually makes sense because wars and rumors of wars and famines and pestilences, this is like an average year right. through most of human history. Right. That there's wars going on, and if if war is not in your area, then it's somewhere. I mean, there's a reason Coming to that, your area soon, right? Yeah. Right. And you know, in the it, the the David and Bathsheba story starts with you know in in the it was the time when kings went to war, right? Right. In the season <laughs> right. that kings the went spring, to war, as like, they did ev- every year. You know, it's time yeah. to go to war. Well, like that is so foreign to our way of thinking that we think, oh man, war is just it's never been like this. Like, no, dude. Every <laughs> every spring was. Yeah just war everywhere for quite a while in, in human history. So we're in an unusual 
circumstance where war is, is actually not the default. Yeah. It's an intrusion uh, upon normalcy. Yeah. And so the interesting thing for me is like revelation, you have, uh, the, the, the four horsemen at the beginning there, those four horsemen, interestingly correspond very nicely to what Jesus talks about with the wars and rumors of wars, famine and pestilence in many areas mm. and so on. It actually maps on to those four horsemen at the right. beginning. And so what that tells us, actually, if you if you look at Revelation, and this is, again, if you want to understand Revelation, you really need to understand a lot of other scripture and, sec- and Second Temple uh, early Jewish literature, because it's so dense with the symbolism that's pulling from a lot of stuff in, in the Hebrew Bible or the Septuagint. Uh, it's pulling from... I think some of the traditions that we have in the, in the gospels, you know, Mm -hmm. it, 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 I think it knows the synoptic apocalypse essentially, Mm -hmm. and it puts that in symbolic form. And when those horsemen go out and those horsemen also match up, of course, to the four horses that show up in Zechariah, which is its its own really difficult passage. Mm -hmm. It's, these are not, this is not the beginning of the end. This is just, these are, these are things that God set loose and they've been running loose for quite a while. This is a revelation of how things are, Hmm. not so much how things have been in that respect. Once you understand that Jesus says, look, you're going to hear about all this stuff. Don't think that's the marker of the end. And then he gives some things to look for. So that actually, I think is important to understand and read really carefully and read those details. Cause it's really easy to hear Jesus answer like, Oh, wars and rumors of wars and go, Oh, well, those are the signs of the end, but we have to listen to the next statement statement, which is, but the end is not yet. Don't worry right. about it. <laughs> and canonically speaking, like you just at some point have to ask your question. Do you believe that the Jesus of Matthew or Mark, um, is being listened to by the revelation that's given through John, right? Like, is that the same person who has a cognizance of those same ideas, right? Either that or it's a competition between these, you know, oh, they didn't know about this other this other conception of the apocalypse. Speaking of apocalypse, um, can we really quickly uh, demystify this word? Because you say apocalypse, and if I say this in front of my students, they think I'm talking about like 28 days later or or in our generation or my generation, the day after that, if you remember that nuclear holocaust movie. Um, so what is apocalypse what does it mean and what is it doing in the time of Jesus and that first century after what do, what do apocalyptic texts do? <laughs> and this is also tricky because you have, you, you've had a lot of discussion about this within biblical scholarship I mean, right. going back to, you know, the, uh, uh, there was, there were, there was a whole working group around how do we define what constitutes the apocalyptic, the apocalyptic genre? Yeah. Uh, and as with all sorts of things in, in, biblical scholarship. It's it's something of an artificial category that's been created to include a lot of texts that share a sort of family resemblance. So it's the same way that you have different movies that, you know, share certain resemblances. And then you have out of that, you get, uh, you know, oh, this is an action movie, or, you know, this is a, this is a thriller, or this mm-hmm. is a dramedy or whatever. Those are kind of artificial categories and nothing exactly fits only one category or one thing perfectly, but apocalypse or apocalypses uh, is within scholarship generally treated as a genre of literature that more or less matches up with what revelation looks like. (laughs) So revelation kind of becomes the, uh, the sort of ideal type. Hmm. And then there's lots of early Jewish literature that, looks kind of like revelation. And so those things get sorted into 
apocalyptic literature. And it's called apocalyptic literature because the first word of Revelation is apocalypsis, which is where we get the word apocalypse from. And that just means the uncovering or unveiling. Mm -hmm. Uh, So apocalypsis is, you know, to take the cover off of something so that you can show it for what it is. Uh, And so this is revelatory literature. You know, apocalypsis is translated as revelation into English. This is revelatory literature where essentially you have a visionary figure is shown essentially the uh, the heavens are peeled back in some way, whether it's a journey to heaven or, you know, the, the, uh, a heavenly messenger comes and opens the eyes or whatever. There are a variety of different ways that this works, but a heavenly messenger is then given a new way of it's given heavenly eye view, essentially Mm -hmm. the God's eye view of how the world is actually working. Uh, and, there are a couple different types of these. I mean, you have vertical apocalypses, which, you know, basically the visionary figure is caught up to heaven and then gets to see how like the cosmos is actually organized. So, you know, then I got to see where the thunders are kept and, you know, these sorts of things. And these are kind of mystical texts uh, that grow into other forms of Jewish mysticism later on. Uh, and then you have uh, horizontal or historical apocalypses, uh, of which Revelation is probably best categorized, although it's got its own vertical Elements components. Of that, yeah. So a lot of times these both go together, but this is where the visionary is given sort of a God's eye view of history and, and sees history in some sense all at once. And you get to see in the symbolic form of, okay, so this beast, you know, took over and went on a rampage against these people. And here's how this happened. And this is how God was controlling things in, you know, this case. And then this beast came in and replaced it. You see this in Daniel, you see this Mm -hmm. in revelation. And these are usually kind of thinly veiled code for, you know, different nations or empires. These hybrid beasts are usually empires comprised of different nations. So uh, you get like the animal apocalypse in, in, in first Enoch, where you have, each different nation is represented by an animal. And well, then it makes sense that you have a hybrid beast made up of different animals is an empire that includes those various, Hmm. uh, those various peoples within it. And, you know, they're monstrosities because they're including lots of different ethnicities and peoples within them. In any case, what these, what this literature generally does is it gives sort of an account of history up to a certain point. And then, shows how God is actually in control and then ultimately points to the moment where God is going to break into history and bring about justice and establish what for the better, for the lack of a better way of putting it, the kingdom of God or a new empire of God Mm -hmm. where God is going to rule injustice in the world and finally set things right. uh, Whereas, you know, in the present, it doesn't look like they are. And there's all sorts of other characteristics, but that's that's the basic fundamentals of what apocalyptic literature is, and, and Revelation is, of course, the sort of ideal type of that. Yeah, so if we were to give the kind of the TLDR on Revelation, well, A, like I was just thinking as you were explaining even the term it comes from apoluo, right? Uh, it's a contracted word. Um, 
But this revealing, I mean, you could easily, just as easily call this literalistically something like the revealing to John or something like, like that to get you in the mode of thinking about what they're doing. And the the revealing is essentially, hey, there's going to be a bunch of turmoil. People are going to do lots of bad things. They're going to switch allegiances, et cetera. But through thick and thin and every, you know, every which way we look at it, uh, the God of the universe here is going to still bring his full rule and reign into, into being. Um, uh, and that's that way. And I mean, that's a strong theme in Daniel. Um, that's obviously a strong thing in revelation. So I guess it, it really raises the question though, well, how much do we need to niggle out all of this, the individual symbolism that's going on there? Like, is that individual symbolism like for not, or should we actually spend some time trying to figure it out? Oh, that's a little bit of a little bit from column A and a little bit from column yeah, B for yeah. me. In that, I think the the overarching message of Revelation of God is in control, and ultimately Jesus sits enthroned already at the you know in, in the heavens. And is going to bring about the uh, the kingdom of God on earth, where God's will will be done, and mm-hmm. justice will be brought, and no one is going to escape that. Uh, and, and you know whether for good or for ill, uh, I think that fundamental message. If you get if you get nothing else but that right. out of Revelation, then I think you've gotten the majority of what it's trying to give you, which is. You know, G- God is in control, and Jesus is enthroned, and justice and judgment are coming. Hmm. You get that, and you live in light of that, and I think the author of Revelation is probably pretty pleased <laughs> with with that outcome. Um, of course, it never hurts to have more understanding of specific things that you know lead to better understanding of how that actually works. So, I think you know, trying to understand other things more and tease out more. You know, I'm not going to discourage that with anybody, but I do think that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, the, the most important thing is to get the big picture that the document that the, that the text is actually aiming for, even if you don't understand all the pieces. And I'm not sure I've fully understood any piece of literature that I've ever read. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, and it, and that includes things I've read three, four, 10, 12 times there's always something more that I can get out of it. Like, oh man, that was great. I can't believe I missed that on the first read, but that doesn't make the first read valueless. And I think Revelation sort of fits that same. Moment. Yeah, and I, I think that's a. If if people walk away with nothing else than that point, um, the, I do think there is a danger, and I'm I won't claim this of everybody I know, but you meet people every once in a while who are really into decoding Revelation. And it really feels like a project of like domesticating the text so that I know exactly what's going on rather than this kind of um, submitting to the text and letting it be a little wild and fanciful and tawdry or whatever. You know, it's got everything. It's got laughs and cries and everything in there. So so I do think part of this is we're talking about method. How do you approach such a wily text? And the answer I hear coming from you is like, well – Check yourself before you wreck yourself. If you're if you're if you're trying to make this into your lap dog, then that might be problem A, right? <laughs> yeah. Did I, I mean, mix enough metaphors there? 
<laughs> no, I think this, I think that works. Well, I mean, that's exactly what Revelation does though. Right. I mean, Revelation has mixed metaphors all over the place and it's got, you know, even the Greek of Revelation is, it, you know, it comes off as very clumsy and, mm. you know, it reads like someone who's not exactly a native Greek speaker or certainly maybe not a, uh, a, a, a native, especially well-trained Greek author, Greek writer. This is someone who probably is a, is, is multilingual and probably a Semitic speaker of some sort who is writing in this way. And there, I think there are certain places where the, the grammar and so on is clumsy in ways that force you to have to kind of grapple with mm. the, the, with that aspect of it. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I think the, the messiness of it is actually part of the design too, even, uh, mm. that force you to, uh, to, 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 deal with those mixed metaphors and to deal with the, uh, not allowing, you know, there's, there's that moment. And I think this is important within the scope of revelation. There's that moment where the thunder, he hears the thunders and he's told, don't write that down, hmm. seal that up. And that in some ways is the, I think the, the, the book communicating that like, look, there's a lot about this stuff that you're not, you're just not going to be able to get. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. There is a, mystery that that from the earthly perspective from this side of heaven you just you're not going to really fully understand you have to get the angle from you know from heaven down you have to get the god's eye view to understand or to you know to hear what's going on and you don't have that luxury but don't worry it's under control i think that's i mean that that section in the book why else put that in there that you hear these thunders and then you know you're told not to write it down well i'd love to know what you know what are you supposed to right. what, what did you hear why did you well, even tell that, me that? <laughs> right. Why did you tell me that? Well, you're, I think part of that is the, the communication is you're not going to understand all of this Yeah. and that's okay because God is in control. It's, it's not a mind transfer text where like, I saw this now, let me transfer all this information over to your mind <laughs> and now you will see it too. I think this would be the wrong genre for that. Yeah. If, the, if that was what you were trying to do. Yeah. And I think it's deceptive because it, it has such powerful imagery that you do build images of everything, but at some point your brain just gives up. It's impossible to map it all and to put it in space and history, et cetera. Um, if I could ask you one last question on Revelation, um, I always tell my classes it's like the most Old Testament book in the New Testament. And what I mean by that is you kind of have to know the most of Hebrew Bible in order to make sense of a lot of things that are going, just the small things that are going on there. If you could pick uh, some books of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, I would say like, you want to understand Revelation, read these books a couple times over and understand <laughs> them well, and this will help you. Okay, the answer can't be read the whole Hebrew Bible over and over again until you understand Revelation. But if you could pick a few spots for people to drop in, where would you point them? Um, well, my, that takes away my my short answer. My short answer is all of it, and you okay. better know it inside out, and you better be <laughs> able to, you know, grapple with wordplay uh, in certain areas as yeah. well. Because um, I do think Revelation might be the densest book in the New Testament in terms of its use of scripture. Oh yeah. Uh, it, yeah. it just, it's like almost every word of revelation is alluding to or reflecting on some, some other part of, of, uh, of scripture and sometimes of early Jewish literature that's not in the canon. Yeah. Um, it's like a one hour hip hop song where every sentence is like a callback to some other, yeah, some other song or some other cover of some other song or, you know, it's incredibly yeah. detailed. So, I mean, the first place I, I think you, you have to go is Daniel. 
Yeah. Because so much from Revelation is riffing on Daniel. Mm. Uh, you know, Daniel 4 through 9 in particular, where you get the, the visions of the four beasts and so on. And Revelation's beast is very obviously Daniel's fourth beast or a version of it. Mm. And once you realize that the fourth beast is actually the, the a hybrid of the, the prior three beasts, which is why you have the number of heads and horns that it does, it's actually the to- sum total of the number of heads and horns from the prior beasts. So it's like all of them put together. Right. So it's like this, you know, bigger, you know, more powerful imperial monstrosity uh, that uh, that comes in. Those are so- those are the sorts of things that can help. Um, Look at you doing then, like apocalyptic Kabbalah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So just add the numbers have, of the heads, and then it'll all yeah. make sense. No, I'm just, yeah, I'm just yeah. Joking. But you can see, like, it's riffing. It's working with Daniel, and it's it, and it's trying yeah. to bring Daniel into the present in light of Jesus. Uh, and so, you know, Daniel nine, where you have the 77s, I think is important. You have the three and a half years creeps up again in revelation and knowing that that's actually an important thing in Daniel in a few places gives you something to kind of look at how it's developing that. Hmm. Uh, so I'd say Daniel is definitely important. Um, I think Leviticus 26, because Leviticus 26 is so important for Daniel 9, mm. uh, which is interacting with Jer- with Jeremiah and also then uh, it, it reads Jeremiah's 70 years together with uh, uh, Leviticus 26. I think that's one which has all sorts of covenantal curses and you know certain aspects of that. I think it's good to have. Um, I think Deuteronomy 4 to 6 mm. would definitely be an area that I would I would look at. Uh, along with Deuteronomy twenty-eight to thirty-two, which I and I continue actually, really Deuteronomy twenty-eight to thirty-four, I would yeah. say, those chapters. If you really want to understand the New Testament, I mean, I'm I'm becoming increasingly convinced that if you if you this isn't just Revelation, but if you want to understand what's going on in like in Romans, you better know Deuteronomy twenty-eight to thirty-four inside and out. Hmm. Uh, and I think that aspect of sort of expecting restoration, but you have different covenantal curses involved. And then there's reference to the nations under the various hosts of heaven, which tie to some of the astrological symbolism of of revelation, all sorts of different things that show up there that are really, really important. Uh, And then I think uh, Isaiah 40 through 66, there's a lot of little things there, especially a lot of the Babylon type stuff comes from that. Uh, And, and I think that's, that's really important. Uh, and then Ezekiel one through 13, where you've got some of the imagery there that is directly pulled from that with the living creatures and all of that. Uh, and then, uh, Ezekiel, uh, 20 and then, uh, 34 through 48, you've got, you know, the, the chapters that everybody likes to skip right, in right. Ezekiel with all the, the all reestablishment the of stuff. the temple and the priesthood, right? Yeah. Well, Revelation's interested in that yeah, area. Yeah. So, you know, you need to, you need to look at, at some of that stuff as well. So, you know, those areas of Ezekiel um, are, I think, really important for Revelation. And then one outside of the, you know, biblical canon, unless you're in the Ethiopic Orthodox Church. Which they I would take say, everything. Uh, yeah, and I would say First Enoch uh, 14 mm. through 21. Uh, but really, I mean, you could, read, you could argue all of First Enoch. You've got the, you know, the animal apocalypse in First Enoch, which is relevant uh, but First Enoch fourteen through twenty one is one that I have my students when I teach on mm-hmm. Revelation. I have them read that because it actually has these seven 
angels that it calls watchers mm. and it names them and gives their specific responsibilities and everything. And it lines up surprisingly well with the seven angels of revelation and what happens when they, uh, break the, you know, the seal or blow, blow when seals are broken or when the seven angels blow their trumpets, what happens? It lines up remarkably well with what's happening in, in first Enoch there. So it again shows mm. how some of this is, is partaking of the same, it's they're breathing the same air. So those would be probably the first places that I'd go. Um, I mean, that's a decent amount. I mean, if you can yeah. understand, and you know, just if you just read those those passages and really got to where you you knew them well, yeah. that would be a good start for a lot. But I think those are places that revel. And, and one last, I guess, is that section of the the sort of apocalyptic section of Zechariah, which is oh, really yeah. strange. And uh, and and Revelation again is pulling from that, especially with the with the uh, first seals and all of that. So, um, so yeah, those would be the first places that I would go in understanding what's going on in Revelation. I'm really tempted to go on a tangent at this point, but we we need to wrap it. it. No, no, no. It's it it would be a long tangent, but um, yeah, I think the you named a lot of texts that I spend time, a lot. You know, I spend inordinate amounts of time in my classes on um, in surveys because I do think especially like Deuteronomy 28 to the end, like it's it's the part that students are most shocked by um, because they don't realize that this sets up a whole trajectory for what's going to happen for the rest. Also, you could you'd include Deuteronomy in this as well, but a lot of these texts that you're citing um, happen to be Israel in places where their security and their future is threatened, unsure, and the powers that be that surround them are absolutely intimidating, thrusting, crushing. Um, and so it seems like Revelation has that same context of we don't know how history is going to turn out. It looks like we're going to be destroyed. They are destroyed eventually. Um, and who who holds the keys of the kingdom, the, the, the ultimate power and authority? So those, uh, those themes are not new. And maybe you could even argue that Deuteronomy kind of begins that discussion of you need to trust me and listen um because this is this is this is going to get real real um but but <laughs> i am still in charge right so um i think that's very helpful i think we got people oriented rightly and amen amen on all those passages you listed and probably uh we could number a few more and not be uh persnickety and say things like well just read the whole torah over and over again but there is a sense like deuteronomy 28 is hard to read out of step with Exodus one through fourteen, uh, Genesis <laughs> one through eleven, particularly, but you know, yes, but yes, yes, and all, and more, yes. So uh, one of the questions that we got from our listeners was, you know, Revelation is symbolic, but then you get to the end of Revelation, it talks about the new heavens, new earth. Uh, so do then we toss out that and say, well, that's not real because it's symbolic because it's in resola- uh, Revelations? Yeah. So how do you? What do you, what do you, would you say to somebody who asked that question? So I think the, uh, first of all, I think that this is still largely symbolic. I think that the way that this is, uh, this is constructed is, uh, it's really important to read that, that, uh, Revelation 21 in the context of what we get just a little bit earlier where the angel says, uh, I'm going to show you, uh, you know, uh, the, the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then he sees the, the the new Jerusalem, and you get this uh, this uh, revelation uh, twenty uh, twenty one ten. He carried he carried me away in the spirit uh, to a great high mountain, showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God. Uh, well, that's great. The immediately prior clause, 
come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Well, right. if you're reading this in a you know Christian canonical context, you have a pretty good idea of what or whom the bride, the wife of the lamb is, and that is the people of God. And so this heavenly Jerusalem is the people of God symbolically described as coming down out of heaven. And, you know, this is the, the, the idea of, uh, the, the, those who have citizenship in heaven, they are, mm. you know, Paul talks about, we are, uh, citizens of a heavenly Jerusalem. And then what happens is heavenly Jerusalem is brought to earth. This is the kingdom of God come to earth. And, and the, those who are seated in the heavens with Christ then come to earth. And then this gives a description of their perfection as, you know, in, in, the sense of a symbolic city. And so uh, I don't think that's any less symbolic than the rest of Revelation. And, you know, unfortunately for some, you know, who've dreamed of this for many, many years, uh, that means that, you know, the streets of gold and all of this are really ultimately descriptions of the bride, the wife of the lamb, Hmm. and not of like where people go when they die. Uh, So I think that is- And the lamb is probably not a real lamb. Yeah, also not a real lamb, yeah. (laughs) So, you know, this is just part and parcel of what we get when we get to Revelation. And it shows how important it is to read really carefully. Because Mm -hmm. when he says, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, and then he sees the heavenly Jerusalem, you're supposed to identify those two. And otherwise, you know, you don't end up seeing that, like, I don't see a woman. Right. But you see the city, but the city is the bride and the city is the people. And so, you know, welcome back to this symbolism of Revelation. (laughs) Well, look, you just like secured one of my interpretations about, you know, when people talk about, well, but the elders are in, in, are in heaven right now casting their crowns uh, under the throne of the slain lamb. Uh, and I was, I've always pointed out, well, that's a vision that he has. But like, did you think that there really was a slain, like Jesus is a, an actual slain lamb? or uh, And it seems to fit the same rubric that there, that strong imagery it's a little lost on us because the images don't mean to us what they would have meant to ancient audiences, and um, it's difficult for us to know what they would have meant. Dr. Jason Staples, thank you so much for very quickly getting us set straight on one of the thorniest books in the Bible. Thank you for having me. This is fun. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.